Big, big hitting from Nadal, has a volley. Oh, it's the middle of the court, what was he doing? He plays a second volley, he got so lucky, Nadal, and then he vamoses and punches his fist into the air. Surely, 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 lovely volley from Nadal, and there it is from Rafa Nadal. Three-time US Open champion Rafa Nadal. Can the world number one successfully defend his Flushing Meadows crown? One of many questions we'll be asking and maybe getting some answers to on the US Open ATP Tennis Radio Preview podcast coming to you from New York. And I'm very happy to say that joining me in Manhattan not actually that long after I landed is Nick McCarville. How are you? I'm good. You're looking quite... quite fresh <laughs> off your flight. I was about to say good Easy. evening, then I wasn't sure if it was good afternoon, <laughs> and I wasn't quite sure, but we're actually, we should say, so it's Saturday evening, and we're in the lobby of the hotel. You've kindly come to meet me where I'm going to be based for a couple of weeks. And the first thing that struck me about just coming back into Manhattan is how busy, I haven't even been to Flushing Meadows yet, but how right. busy Manhattan is. Yeah, is it striking for you? I mean, you live outside of London, but is it striking when you come to New York City? Because I live here. I mean, I'm on tour half the year, but New York's <laughs> home to me, so I kind of just ignore the busyness of it. But is it striking? It, it's crazy. And, and especially because at the hotel, they're holding a tennis teachers conference. <laughs> you have players staying here. You have fans staying here. It's an enormous hotel. So when I arrived, I was a little bit jet lagged and hazy, but I was kind of blown away. Yeah. And it, it, it's an amazing buzz you get because you suddenly think I'm here and it's the tennis and it's starting. But it does hit you sort of like a, a hammer. It's funny because everywhere else tennis goes in the world, I feel like the players talk about comfort and amenities and slowness and quiet and wanting to feel very at peace with themselves and their tennis. And actually, I've asked a few players about staying because you could stay opposite Manhattan, which would be going out into Long Island quieter, big homes, yep. get a pool, Sounds lovely. chill out. None of them, a very, very few do it because they. Manhattan just has that buzz about it. And we will attest to that shuttle ride out to Flushing. I mean, the players get cars, but the shuttle ride is not sexy. It's not. Nick McCarville is, is a familiar voice to everybody listening to ATP Tennis Radio. Nick, you've actually been on site. So how are things? At Flushing Meadows, anything new to report? Yeah, lots new to report. There's a brand new Louis Armstrong Stadium. I actually haven't stepped in it yet to see the new Louis, uh, a roof that they have used in that stadium now. It was a full rebuild from last year's US Open to this year's. It's the end of a five-year campus redo that added the roof on Arthur Ashe Stadium, $600 million, just a couple couple pennies that they spent on revamping. I mean, it looks beautiful from the outside. You can see it coming in. I took the 7 train today. I, you have to do it at least once a year for me. Okay. And so I did it today. I got it out of the way. Why I took do you the have seven to do train. it? Because it's just you're taking the subway to the tennis. You start at Grand Central. It takes you 40 minutes because it's a local train out to Mets Willits Point, And then you walk over the bridge to the U.S. Open. That sounds very nice. Yeah, it was cool. You should do it once. I'll give you directions. I'll, you, Gigi's looking very scared at the suggestion of taking the 7 train. I got you. I'll even give you a Metro card. It's not a good thing to talk to me about when I'm possibly, I don't know what time, but we're five hours behind. So it's, it's bedtime back home. So definitely, though, I'd like to do that maybe in week two when yes. things as, as get, as calm, get as calm as they maybe do get. Yes, in, in week two. Now, there was there was a new media day. This, was that on Louis Armstrong? That was, yeah. So they were meant to be showcasing the new Louis. And I, I didn't go to Media Day yesterday. I was doing a couple events here in the city. And so um, I heard that there were some mixed reviews as far as um, player accessibility. They had fans in there. There was noise. There was. It was meant to be sort of the Super Bowl does a Media Day on the field in the, in the days leading up to the Super Bowl. Right. And it's a free-for-all. But it's kind of this famous media availability for the Super Bowl and the journalists love it there. I don't know what is different about it versus what they did yesterday, but I I think the, you know, to see the players out on court, maybe a little bit of a different point of view, but um, yeah, that's what they did to showcase the new Louis. Now you're doing something a little bit different this year. Yeah, I am. So last year I was on Grandstand as the encore host. I kept coming to annoy you to do podcasts. I was like, Nick, are you finished on Grandstand? You're like, in a minute, the match is about to end. And I'd be like lurking and waiting for you on like a table just outside Grandstand. Yes, because I was doing the world feed interviews to camera (laughs) and then I would bring the next matches on, which is what I did in Cincinnati a couple weeks ago on Stadium 3. Uh, This year I'm doing world feed commentary. It's my first time doing that. So you can hear me 
um, on the streams of ESPN3 digitally, and then anywhere if you're watching the tennis and you don't have a color commentator or a commentary team that is put in place by your broadcaster, that'll be my voice. Now, people, when they listen to podcasts when we're at tournaments, they're used to the sort of the buzz of the tennis. Maybe there's a couple of balls in the background. People might hear music and think we're at some kind of concert. <laughs> Just a reminder, we're actually, Nick was kind enough to come from Flushing Meadows to meet me in the lobby of the hotel where I'm staying because I landed a short while ago and we're speaking to you on Saturday evening. So things might change because there's still a couple of days people might pull out, things might happen. But in terms of the, the storylines going into what's been the biggest storyline? There's, there's a few around, but what's caught your eye going into it? I think the big thing for me is, if I can call them, at least for right now, the big three and the storyline among Roger, Rafa, and Novak. Novak coming off of the Wimbledon win, and he didn't necessarily, I don't think, looked his best in Toronto or really in the lead-up, but fought his way, wins that ninth Master Series title. He's the first player to ever win all nine Masters. We're calling it the Golden Masters, and he's also won all four slams, so quite an accomplishment for him there. But the fact that he won there, Roger was runner-up and played some pretty good tennis. Not his best, but pretty good. And Rafa was champion in Toronto, then pulling out, choosing not to play in Cincinnati. So it almost feels like all three of them have this favorite status going into the U.S. Open. We're going to see Andy Murray. Not going to be in anyone's pick to win this, not even in his own mind to win this, because he's got a very different agenda. He's coming into this to see how he goes. He pulled out on the eve of Wimbledon this year because it was the, the five-set format. But he's played a few matches since then it's his first Grand Slam appearance in 15 months and it's going to be really interesting I think for everybody we saw how emotionally got in Washington when he came through round after round and just broke down courtside this is a big moment for Murray back from the hip surgery and Grand Slam action well it'll be really interesting to see how he goes physically because he he did make that decision I think maybe it was unpopular to a lot of people to not play Wimbledon because physically he didn't feel like he was going to be able to withstand five sets everyone was so looking forward to Andy Murray against Benoit Pair in the first round at Wimbledon <laughs> here Andy Murray has James Duckworth who himself I think is still using a protected ranking coming back from his own challenges physically so that'll be an interesting test of attrition and balancing body I mean talent on paper obviously Murray is the favorite there but I think it really will be about the first step for Andy to try to just get through one five set match and I almost feel like he got challenged that way in DC because of all the late nights he played what two or three times into a third set tie break um, that match against Marius Coppola was insane at 3am <laughs> and so I feel like that was a good test obviously then he he lost his opening match in Cincinnati to Luca Pui so maybe he's a little bit undercooked but I actually think that might help him just physically and he was doing a training block in Philadelphia and I also have to say this is my favorite social media version of Andy Murray. He's been having a lot of fun on his Instagram story. The roller coaster <laughs> ride with yeah. Nick Kyrgios. And it's, it's been great to see, though. I think he said for the first time, Cincinnati in, what, 12, 13 years, he left his hotel room. He went across to the fairground and he got on that roller coaster and the other rides with Nick Kyrgios and others that were there. He's, I think for him, he's, he's seeing things. Some people, I saw a few articles saying this is the, the final phase of the Murray career and it may well be because he's over 30, he's undergone a hip surgery. We don't know how this comeback will go, but he seems to be embracing it and also enjoying himself a little bit off the court when he's at tournaments yeah no I mean it really truly does and he's being silly and fun and he went to the white you know he went and got pictures in front of the White House and the roller coaster with Kyrgios and goofing off with his team you can tell that Jamie Delgado and the, everyone around him think they're really trying to foster a sense of newness and you can just tell how much Andy loves his job and how long and painful it was for him to be away from the tennis. So my hope, Gigi, is that translates in that match. The winner of Murray against Duckworth would play either Feliciano Lopez or the seed Fernando Verdasco in the second round. Doesn't get any easier. Another story coming into this was the, and it had been mumblings that this was happening, but the official confirmation that Ivan Lendl was now part of Team Zverev, a friend of Zverev Senior from the junior days. And I remember when Ivan Lendl teamed up with Andy Murray, it was to get him across that finish line in Grand Slams. 
and when it comes to the, the Zverev game, he's conquered the three-set format. It's now about focusing on five sets in Grand Slams. It really has become about that because, you know, you could say maybe at the beginning of this year that Sasha was still working himself into a top 10 player and consistently being a favorite because he had such a good summer last year. But the fact that he's again struggled at the majors this season, yes, he made the final eight in Paris. He had a good run breaking that streak, having not had only gotten past it once before. But overall, he's got to figure out, I think he did a lot of work after Wimbledon physically away from the tennis court to get his body even better because in that run to the French Open, he exhausted himself. I mean, he, he completely used the tank up in matches that he didn't necessarily need to. And I think Yvonne Lendl will be that X factor or he's gonna try to be that X factor for Sasha. But he is a cemented top five player, so he's got to figure that out. Because now, if it doesn't happen here, Gigi, even a you know good run to the quarters, semis, final, champion, whatever, into that deep into that second week, because otherwise the storyline in Australia is going to be why can't you figure out the majors? It's going to be interesting though with Ivan Lendl because when he was working with Juan Carlos Ferrero, it didn't seem like it ended that well. They are such a close-knit group, the Zverev family, the people with him. So maybe the fact that Ivan Lendl has known Alexander Zverev senior since their junior days and there's just a little bit more of a bond there already. So he'll fit in with, it's, it's tight. When you've got a tight group of players, it's hard to step into. I think that's a great point. And I also think, I mean, listen, I, it seemed for a while, uh, Juan Carlos Ferrero was batting a thousand with Sasha Zverev. I mean, they win in Washington. He wins in Montreal last year, and it felt like, gosh, we can do nothing wrong. Obviously things fizzled there, but I think maybe Juan Carlos was a little too young or almost a little too relational in a sense because it felt like an older brother coaching him, not Yvonne Lendl. I don't think Yvonne Lendl feels like anyone's older brother. <laughs> so I think that dynamic, as you're saying, there's the extra connection with Sasha Sr. I think that really will help sort of drive home the Lendlness of it and the coach-player relationship. And I think Sasha is, you know, he would take that very seriously that Lendl, who's, who, did, who worked magic with Andy Murray, is now going to be on his team. I like that Lendlness. <laughs> We've got to use that again. There's few people. Actually, I don't think there's anyone else who has Lendlness except for Yvonne himself. So there you go. No, no, I like it. <laughs> and Sasha's rare with his Lendlness will be taking on another man who's been making a few waves of his own. Peter Polanski has made he's made history as the first lucky loser to complete the career Grand Slam of being a lucky loser. As a lucky loser. <laughs> into all four majors this year as a lucky loser. But I think this is a good time for us to point out the rule change this year, which is if you are injured or you don't feel like you can compete in the first round of a major, if you qualify, if you are in the uh, player list at the cutoff, you are guaranteed half of your first round prize money, even if you don't play. And we saw it at Wimbledon last year in 2017 with so many retirements. There was around 10 in the first round and the ITF changed the rule. And now we've seen more and more lucky losers, Peter Polanski included, <laughs> getting into the main draws because what happens is they split that first round prize money with the lucky loser and the person who doesn't choose to take the spot. And then if the lucky loser gets into round two, you get round two prize money. I mean, that's pretty good. Yeah. It's a very good system, and I think the rules really worked this year. Someone who will never need a lucky loser status is Roger Federer, five-time champion here between 04 and 08, 37 years of age. You touched on that final against Djokovic in Cincinnati. where this We're in a very weird situation that, depending on who does what, Juan Martín de Potra and Sasha have got a chance of overtaking Federer and going second, and that would be the first time in something like 13 years that the top four, none of the top four, they've dominated one and two, that it will be broken up a little bit. Where are you with Federer following that Cincy final? Well, I think Roger changed things up this year, obviously not playing in Canada, because last year he did play Montreal, made the final, tweaked his back and then pulled out of Cincy and didn't feel 100% for the US Open. I mean, there was a lot of chatter among the media and inside the locker room that Roger was lucky to get to the quarterfinals. I mean, he's Roger Federer, he's, he is always going to go out and give his best, but it was going to be a long shot for Roger to win the tournament last year. This year, the concern is different because he seems to be healthy, he seems to be playing pretty good tennis, but is he a little bit undercooked as far as, as you know, 
balancing the schedule, not necessarily wanting to overplay, but I think that he's got a good opener in Yoshihito Nishioka. I think that'll be a good match for him to find his form. Last year, Tiafo took him to five sets in the first round. That was concerning Amazing for him. Match. But he's got a big test in Nick Kyrgios in the third round, should they both make it there. And then I think if Roger can kind of find his form, that's my only concern is that he didn't necessarily ever look great in Cincinnati. He looked pretty good against Stan Wawrinka in a thrilling three-setter. But I, I think he saved one match point in that match. But is he a little, does he not necessarily have the reps going into the Open? We like to have a good first round match. We love to have a good first round match. But at the same time, it's a shame. And just the two that you might have another one, the, the two I picked out, Stan Wawrinka against Grigor Dimitrov. We're going to lose one very early on. And Felix Ogialiasim, who came through the qualifying competition, he's, he's a stunning talent. He really is taking on his fellow Canadian and his roommate at times, Denis Shapovalov. It's crazy. I mean, Shapovalov stayed with Felix and his family when he made his magical run at Montreal last year to the semifinals. I think they were sharing a room, actually, with a poster of Rafael Nadal hung up above <laughs> Dennis's bed, which is still hilarious. But um, <laughs> it'll be, you know, it's actually the added layer to me of interest here is that Ojay Aliasim is flying with confidence. He, he won a match in Toronto as a wild card. He's getting all this positive energy from Dennis's success. And Shapovalov, as the number 28 seed, he's struggled a little bit. He didn't necessarily have the Toronto he wanted. He hasn't had the summer that he wanted. He lost in the early rounds at both the French and Wimbledon. He did win matches there, but he's not necessarily playing with that high-flying confidence we saw him play through into the semifinals in Madrid. And now I think a little bit of a reality check against Felix. I mean, that's going to be a tough match for him. All the dynamics at play, these guys have known each other for years, but that is the blockbuster. If you're a tennis geek, I know there's a lot of tennis geeks with, <laughs> with our sound in your ears right now. That's the match to watch in the first round. And then Vavrinka Dimitrov, they played in the first round at Wimbledon too. That is crazy to me, absolutely crazy. Now we're recording this on Saturday night in Manhattan. The reason I say that, because you might be thinking, why are you talking about Shapovalov? He's no longer in the tournament, if that's what happens. We are recording it Saturday evening. A lot can happen even between now and getting started on the Monday. But briefly looking at the draw, the top half of the draw, just some names to throw out. I really picked out the seeds largely. Rafa Nadal, Kyle Edmund, Dominic Team, Dennis Shapovalov, Kevin Anderson in the the top half of the top half and the bottom half of the top half Juan Martin <laughs> Del Potro Grigor Dimitrov Stan Wawrinka Stefano Tsitsipas Bonacaric and I have to put Andy Murray in there so who who are your favourites coming through from that top I mean it might be someone else that I haven't they for me were just the, the seeded players and added in Murray there yeah sure I mean there's some great first round matches I think Ryan Harrison could give Kevin Anderson a, a little bit of a challenge sometimes Kevin's a slow starter in tournaments um, disappointing to see David Ferrer in what I think is his last Grand Slam drawing Rafael Nadal in the first round. Well, maybe he'll see it's a good thing because if it is to be his final Grand Slam, what better way to go out than playing? Rafael, good friend. We turned it into a positive. It could be a beatdown, though. It's been a tough year for Ferrer. It's been uh, it, on the positive side. His his baby son Leo was born, so yeah. off the court, there's absolutely <laughs> fabulous and wonderful news for David Ferrer. But I, I agree, it's been tough at times to see David Ferrer and and some of those defeats. I think it's interesting to see Dominic Team with a number nine by his name because it hasn't been a great season for Dominic Team. He made the French Open final. He had a great run at Roland Garros, but away from the clay, he's struggled with his body. He's struggled with confidence. He hasn't necessarily been the Dominic Team that worked himself into the top five just last year. And then, uh, you know, a lot of question marks around Kyle Edmund. How's he going to play? I think it'll be really interesting should we get a Rafael Nadal, Karen Hachanov third round because they played in the semifinals in Toronto and Hachanov is playing some good tennis. He really challenged Rafa in that match. He played well against Marin Cilic in Cincinnati. And so I think there's a few dynamics at play. Borna Cioric, can he bring out his hardcourt best? He's finally seated at a Grand Slam. We've waited for that for a long time. Is Stefano Sitspas ready to set the Grand Slam world alight? I don't know the answer to that question. He was incredible. The way that he ran through that draw in Toronto was insane. I mean, beating three top 10 players, beating Novak Djokovic, beating uh, Sasha Zverev. Zverev said that they played pathetic tennis, but listen, Sizabas was less pathetic than Sasha was, and he won that match. You know, he came through. So uh, I don't, uh, I honestly, 
Um, I think it's a good first challenge for him. Tommy Robredo, who qualified, I think that's a really good first test. And then perhaps in the third round against Chorich, how blockbuster would that be? A couple young guns on the ATP tour. I think this will be a first big challenge. It's so weird to see 15 next to Sissipas's name. He's the 15th seed. It, it's crazy. It shows you what a what a good run in a, in a Masters 1000 can actually do. The seeds or the the big names that stand out in the top half of the bottom, as it were. Marin Cilic, <laughs> David Goffer, Diego Schwartzman, Kane Shakuri, and Sasha Zverev. And then the, the bottom half of the bottom half, Novak Djokovic, Roger Federer, Nick Kyrgios, Xiong Chung, who's still making his way back from injury. Fabio Fanini, I mean, he's racking up the titles in 2018. And I just want to throw Benoit Paire in there because you just <laughs> never know what Benoit Paire is going to do. At, for, for me, someone I just keep looking at is, is Kane Shakuri. I keep thinking, yes, Kane Shakuri is going to go on another run, is another big title. And uh, he seems fit and he seemed healthy. Such a dangerous, dangerous player. But can he repeat his feats of 2014? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Nishikori hasn't necessarily done too much for me that's made me feel like, okay, he's really back. And he's also another player that struggled physically over the five-set format. Does he love the New York conditions? I know he made the final in 2014, but we're in for some, it's not humid right now, but we're in, in for some hot and humid weather. Oh, he is the temperature of England. Oh, yeah, be? it's going to climb to the mid to upper 30s. Really? Not over 90 Fahrenheit. <laughs> Gigi's looking at me in total fear. As you're, you're wearing a sweater right now by the way it's August we're, we're in an air-conditioned hotel lobby and I have to say I will be in an air-conditioned commentary box to the point yeah, where be I've been known to wear two jumpers a scarf and an extra <laughs> pair of socks it is that cold only to walk out of the commentary box to be hit by a hairdryer with a heat wave so I, I I envisage That's similar a good hair dryer. It does sometimes feel like a hair dryer. Say the lift doors yeah. open, and then suddenly you're like, "Wow!" And I'm dressed up like it's the Arctic in mid-December. So I <laughs> imagine it similar usually things. Usually, lightly smells of trash outside of New York too, just to add to the glitz. Oh, and lovely! Glam of yeah, Manhattan. it's it's all it's all I, glitz I don't and glam. Know, Sorry, yes, bottom I half. I don't know yeah, <laughs> the top half of the bottom half. <laughs> I don't know for Nishikori. You look at Diego Schwartzman, who made the quarterfinals here last year. David Goffin has played some incredible tennis in the recent past. Um, I look at Francis Tiafo. Could he have a breakout? Marin Cilic showed us some nervy tennis at Wimbledon when everyone was talking about him as Queen's champion. He opens against Marius Koppel, who's actually had a pretty confident summer. I love watching Marius Koppel. He's so expressive. He looks like he can get very angry, then he's very happy, then, oh, yeah, I enjoy <laughs> watching him. Uh, you know, to me, there's less um, first-rounders in the bottom half of the draw to watch for, but there's a lot of names, like you're mentioning, Anisha Kori, Afonini, um, Azverev, Djokovic. There's a lot of dynamics at play should we get to the second, third, fourth round that then we're really talking about, you know, how the second week of the major will look. Um, Nick, thank you so much thank you, for Gigi. your time. Of it course. is Saturday evening, so you've got a bit of... Well, no, you've got dinner to go to. I was about to say you're going to go and do some work, but let's not. No, I'm going to go gonna have, have a dinner, dinner and a nice whiskey and then. Oh, really? Yeah. And then oh, I see. Pre-tournament whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> my friend texted me and said, I have AC and whiskey. And my other friend said, that's my favorite bar, AC and whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> well, have a lovely evening. I, too, I'm thanks. also going to go out and try and stay awake. But have no fear this is not the end of the ATP Tennis Radio podcast for this week because shortly we'll be hearing exclusive interviews that former tour pro and ATP Tennis Radio regular Jill Krabis conducted with legendary coach Brad Gilbert John Isner's coach David McPherson and US Open main draw wild card qualifier it's a bit of a mouthful there Bradley Klan but first of all Jill spoke with 2017 US Open runner-up Kevin Anderson and they started by talking about how last year's success has been the springboard to consistency you know the last few years it's you know my whole mindset has always been you know how can I keep improving so each match each day is on the back of you know many many months of work and lessons learned you know prior uh, prior to the current time so uh, you know the uh, the confidence I got from not just the US Open but I think the whole sort of some of where I came from um, you know this time last year after my ranking dropped a bit through you know th uh, some injuries that I uh, that I picked up and then also the sort of lessons I learned after US Open where you know I didn't finish the year off um, that I uh, that I wanted to either so you sort of go into the end of the year you look as, as, as I always do, you know, what areas can I improve? Um, what areas are working for me? And, you know, we systematically address each of them. And even once the, once, once the year starts, um, you know, it, it's, it's like a day in and day out. I mean, 
I think by me just taking care of the details, I feel like it allows me to have the highest chance of you know success. I feel like I'm doing that more and more, and I think some of the results have definitely shown itself um, this year. And just talking about the details, I just recently read an article saying how you really started trusting yourself a little bit more. Can you expand on that a little bit? Like, how do you feel like you're trusting yourself? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, the biggest thing is I feel like one of my strongest um, uh, attributes have has, has been my work ethic and really, um, you know, always working hard and, um, you know, always putting in the hours. And um, I think that's one of the biggest reasons um, I got to where I, you know, where I am today. Um, at the same time, I think a byproduct of that mindset is you're always looking at something to improve. You're always thinking, you know, how can I improve? How can I do things better? And maybe I think to a small extent, I sort of glanced over all the things that I do very well. And um, so I think just acknowledging that a little bit more um, has been, as uh, you know, a step has, has been a step in my progression of improvement. We're still looking at things, um, you know, that can be better, but it's always, it's, I think just from a basis of a little bit more confidence in my own abilities and the few things that I'm looking at improving is almost adding to my game um, and not necessarily looking for as many things to work on. I know also a lot of people noticed that um, you were showing a lot more emotion last year. Was that something that exactly what you're talking about, maybe recognizing that and, and showing that belief to other players? Yeah, I'm, I think so. I mean, just for me, it was a, a personal thing for myself of, um, you know, when I hit good shots, when I play good points to really, you know, acknowledge that. I think also, you know, tennis is, you know, funny in that often matches can change on a point here and a point there. So I think the biggest thing was, you know, what can I do from a mental stamp, you know, uh, standpoint to put myself in the best position as many points in the match as possible. And I feel like, uh, you know, that definitely lent itself, you know, to doing that, no matter what the score is, no matter what position I'm in to really... Um, you know, acknowledge whether whether I've played a good point, and if I haven't, try and motivate myself to play the, the next point. And I mean, at the end of the day, it's just something. It's a tool that I, you know, I can use that helps me play better tennis. And you, and one last question: You mentioned your coach. You brought on Brad Stein. Um, any particular thing? Why you chose him, and what you think he can bring to your game? Yeah, I mean, you know, I felt like we, you know, had very good conversations right, uh, right from the beginning. He's very experienced, um, you know, in the tennis world. He's coach a lot of players um, obviously probably most notably Jim Courier you know a lot of time spent with him during uh, during the 90s he's a great eye for the game um, and I think some of the goals that I set myself um, I feel like he's you know definitely has a very good mindset for you know for helping me achieve that I think he did a good job of seeing all the things I do well and the stuff that I've worked on um, and the path that I'm on and um, sort of understanding what uh, what works for me, and then at the same time bringing in you know obviously his own perspective, which is natural when you you know start with the new coach. So all in all, I think we you know very happy with the way things are going. But you know a lot of the goals that we've set for ourselves, um, you know, still haven't you know been achieved. It's still a lot of tennis to you know uh, to play for. It always starts with one match at a time. So um, you know that's definitely a, you know our biggest goal. Okay, well, I'm sitting in the player lounge, and it's and I've been able to get beside me David McPherson, coach of John Isner, and has worked with the Bryan brothers for a very long time. David, thank you for joining us here on ATP Tennis Radio. Hi, Joe. Great to be here. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been working for John. If you could just reflect a little bit on the past and how you got started working with John. I know you've been with the Bryan brothers for a long time, um, but how did that this relationship come about? Well, John and I have been friends for a long time, and um, obviously I've been coaching Mike and Bob now for, uh, I guess, 13 years. Uh, but Justin, my good friend Justin Gimelstab, was coaching John uh, in uh, 2015, and so I spent a lot of time with John, I suppose, with Justin, just trying to help out as a friend. And uh, so John and I got close, I suppose, in that year, more close than just normal. And, and then, um, yeah, Justin and uh, had to, uh, you know, devote more time to his family. So he he, um, he and John stopped working together, I guess, somewhere in 2016. And then uh, John and I sort of connected uh Towards the end of 2016, I think we, you know, we sort of decided that, uh, you know, I would, uh, you know, be part of his team uh, moving forward. Now, um, you had worked mainly with doubles players, the Bryan brothers. So, uh, 
transitioning over to John, what were your goals in mind um, going in? And obviously you had seen John play for quite some time. So what were a few things that you knew you wanted to work on in his game? Oh, well, it was it was a fairly um, smooth transition because uh, you're right, I did know John's game well from sort of just supporting him uh, as a friend for, for so long. And uh, I was pretty keen on uh, him becoming a more offensive returner felt and, and just ball striker from the baseline in general uh, sort of you know so that was sort of been a big theme from day one to you know let's try and take control of the return points especially the second serve points which you have some control over you can choose to return second serves uh, passively or aggressively really uh, in most cases uh, against most second serves perhaps not John himself but you know most players second serves are there to be uh, taken advantage of so that's been a big uh, theme go, uh, trying to be a more offensive returner more positive returner and uh, control the return games more and the break points in particular uh, and then obviously the big thing is the mental side which you know is that most of the game John has enormous uh, skill set lots of different areas I, I think uh, Justin and I have, you know, worked hard on his net game. And, you know, we really feel like John is a, uh, a beautiful volley now, um, and so that we feel like he's still got a lot to improve upon. But uh, we're trying to, you know, make him a more assertive player and a stronger mental player. Now, you, you mentioned the mental side, and I know John's always had extreme success on the tour. Um, but this year in particular, I spoke to him in Indian Wells, and he voiced how you know he was struggling a little bit at the beginning of the year. He came away with that doubles title with Jack Sock in Indian Wells, and he said he was hoping that would get a, was going to give him some confidence. And obviously, he's done well since then. Won Miami, won Atlanta, semifinals of Wimbledon. Do you think it was the mental side that was really the key in this last stretch? Absolutely, yes. He just uh, had a little stretch there where he just wasn't playing, uh, you know, with confidence and playing positively in the important moments, uh, doubting himself, and uh, uh, winning Indian Wells with Jack was, was great, it sort of, you know, it was a little bit of a shot in the arm, uh, boosted the confidence a little bit, and then uh, we really had a, a good heart-to-heart in Miami before the tournament started about the mental aspect of the game and how uh, we wanted to rededicate ourselves to being positive and not let adversity get the best of John. And uh, he had some adversity in the first round. He was in a, a really tight match. Uh, what kind of adversity, if you don't mind me well, asking? He, physically, he was struggling. Okay. Uh, and he was uh, had lost the second set. And, it, you know, it was one of those matches that, you know, it looked like it was going the wrong way. And uh, he really gutted it out. Things went his way. He was able to couple up with a couple of key positive plays that turned the match around. And then from there, obviously, he beat a slew of great players, uh, you know, Chung and Sasha and Marin and Delpo. I mean, it was just, uh, you know, he just got better and better in Miami. And uh, and that sort of, you know, I think uh, from there on, the self-belief has been stronger. And he understands acutely how uh, important being mentally strong and dealing with adversity is to success. And just to talk about Wimbledon just for a little bit, that first semifinals for him at a Grand Slam, obviously a huge confidence booster. Does, it, was there another level where he, he felt like, okay, yes, now I belong really deep in all slams now? Well, I think Miami obviously gives you, especially beating the, you know, course, the cast yeah. of characters that he beat to win that title, gave him a good, strong belief that he belongs in, in the biggest of events. And... Uh, so you so, feel like more Miami than a semifinal over Slam, or or both of them in conjunction well, with each other? Gosh, I mean, you know, winning a, not many people win us. Of course, yeah. So that yeah. certainly gave him a lot of belief and uh, uh, encouragement. And then uh, Wimbledon, he just put together, you know, he just did his job each day. It's all about just winning the match in front of you. I mean, it's really, that's a cliche, but it's so true. I mean, if you just keep beating the guy in front of you, you'll end up being a Grand Slam champion. And he uh, he almost did that. You know, Kevin, you know, just uh, was a teensy bit too good in the semifinal. Um, but it was really just one match at a time and uh, staying strong mentally uh, through each contest. And uh, he's got such an incredible skill set that, uh, you know, we, we, we both feel, all, all of his coaching staff feel that, uh, you know, when he's uh, really dialed in and at his best, you know, he can beat anyone and there's no reason why he can't feel like he should win or could win at least every tournament that he yeah. enters, including the majors. Yeah, I mean, I, I think as a former player, I realized how much winning titles gives you such that confidence boost. That was a huge, huge title for him. So that was... 
awesome to see. And I love seeing him in the semifinals too. And I'm going to have, at Wimbledon, I'm going to have to ask you, of course, you've probably been asked this many times, is the fifth set tiebreaker. Um, what, what players have been talking about? Is there a consensus that um, there should be a tiebreaker at some point in the fifth set? Obviously, the U.S. Open already has it, but... What's your take on that? I think that? most of the players would be in favour of that. Pretty much everyone that I've talked to felt like... Because um, John, of course, had the epic match yeah, there. 70, yeah, 68, of course, was another level entirely. No, but also this year yeah, it was 26-24. Yeah, just a drop in the ocean in compared to 70-68. But, uh, yeah, when you get two great servers at Wimbledon that are refusing to yield... Uh, and a little fatigue sets in on the returning side of the of the ball. Gosh, you know you can see that those uh, matches can happen. And uh, oh gosh, you, know, you can make an argument either way that it was pretty enthralling, and people are talking about it obviously because it was such a marathon. But for the players themselves, I mean, wow, that's pretty tough. And uh, I think I think I know John is in favour of playing some extra time. Like he, I think his take on it is that if you got to 12 all, that would be enough, and let's play a tiebreaker from there. Uh, you know, I've heard nine all being tossed around. So you know, probably I would think the Wimbledon committee might be at least talking about it. I mean, I know they love tradition and don't like to change anything. Um, but uh, obviously they at one point have made some changes. They introduced the tiebreaker way back in the day in the first four sets. So perhaps they'll be thinking about it a little bit. Who knows, we might see a change next year. Just talking about um, preparing for the U.S. Open. Obviously, he already has that title in Atlanta. Um, very good confidence here coming into the U.S. Open. And I also just wanted to get your perspective on one thing because uh, John did find out that he's going to be a father. Um, yeah. Has that changed his perspective at all as far as priorities and being more really relaxed helped. on court? I yeah, because like, that was part of what we talked about in Miami. Is that you know you you've got so much good going on in your life, so much to be thankful for. You know you should uh, you know view your tennis uh, in, in such a positive light. And uh, if you don't, uh, if the result isn't too big for you, then uh, that frees you up to play to your potential. So I think that uh, you know the, the, the perspective that he has, uh, you know, is so fortunate. You know, he loves his wife and he's going to become a father, so he has a lot to, to look forward to. And uh, I think that's been a great thing for his tennis too, because it's like you know, I mean, I'm going to give him 100%, but at the end of the day, you know, life's still good. I'm pleased to welcome, who just joined me, um, next to me on the couch, Bradley Klon. Bradley, congratulations on your win today. Thank you so much. Now, your win today, you went through qualifying. You played David Ferrer in the first round. But beating David today secured your wild card for the U.S. Open main draw. Yeah. Did you know that going into the match? It was funny. (laughs) I had kind of done the math going into the tournament, so I knew a little bit. And then actually on the... uh, rain delay reason not to go on instagram during rain delay but i found someone said uh if i won my first round then i would clinch it and i was like who would say that to you three in the breaker and i'm like oh boy here we go but um i felt like i was fighting um through my nerves kind of the entire time i came back out actually um just really wanted to secure that first set and then getting up a break right away and I didn't feel like I served that well in terms of percentage and I mean Frere's so tough just mentally um, making you play so much so I kind of knew I needed to put some first serves in and when he broke back um, I stayed pretty calm and it was really helpful just getting that break back uh, right away. I just wanted to take it you know kind of block out who I was playing and keep playing my brand of tennis that has been successful for me um, over the last few months starting, you know, really on the grass. And I feel like I've been gaining a lot of confidence and raising my level. Um, Obviously, I've grown up watching David play for so long, and I've just had so much respect for the way he's gone about it and his career and um, just how he he fights for every point and you know you're going to have to earn everything from first ball to last ball um so being able to beat a guy of his caliber is you know it means a lot to me it um I feel like I'm on the right path and I hope that this is you know this summer is just kind of the beginning of me getting back to where I was four years ago and taking it further now you mentioned uh, your success four years ago, and then you struggled. You had back surgery, yeah, and we're, we're out 2015-2016 season. Right. That was a really difficult time yeah. for you. How were you able to overcome that? What steps did you need to take? Um, 
I mean, a lot of it was, well, starting with the surgery and just getting my back healthy for one, and then just a lot of um, mentally overcoming the fear of re-injuring my back for one, um, getting back on court, and just getting myself to believe that I could do it again. Just uh, when I, I, it was almost like I was trying to get back too quickly and like looking at oh, I'll never be able to play. Like, how can my fitness handle three out of five sets if I can't even do this and start breaking the goals down into smaller increments um, and just focusing less on kind of the anxiety of my back and more on, like, trying to do a little bit more each day um, step by step. And it it took me about a year to kind of start overcoming those fears and be able to being able to get back on court um and then I felt like I got a good team around me that really helped build up my confidence from the base level um with my PT back in LA strength and conditioning and uh you know from there I started trusting my body again and and how difficult is that to 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 trust yourself like that and to take those steps has it changed the way you practice or your fitness routine um, a little bit. I definitely have learned to be smarter about reading my body and knowing what I can push through and what I need to kind of back off and be like, all right, well, you know, my body's telling me that I should rest a little bit more. Um, I d- can't do the, you know, the same amount of hours on court that I used to do when I was 18, 19, 20, nor do I feel that I need to. Um, you know, I, I feel like I'm as strong as I've ever been in the best shape that I'm in just because of the work I've done off the court as well as on the court. Um, so I, you know, I think the biggest thing is just being smarter, uh, being smarter with my schedule, knowing that when I, when I started out, I was just go, 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 trying to play every week, trying to, um, basically go in until my body burned out and which it did. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I think it's just a, being smarter with it and you mentioned the success you had in the last month um how nice is it because of that success that's why you've been able to earn yourself that wild card into the u.s open how how nice of a feeling is that knowing that you've earned it and not just been given it yeah i think there's a big difference between the two um you know it's it's special to earn your way in based on the results you know it's I'm very thankful to the USTA that they provide us with that opportunity to play for a wild card um you know I'm thankful for their support as well you know I mean uh training in Carson for the last three years with them uh since I came back from surgery and they've stuck with me um so I you know it's a great initiative for them and I'm just really happy that my play is uh you know, I've performed as well as I have during this time and earned my way in. It's great opportunity for you. Yeah. Like just, just say how excited and what, what you're yeah, hoping to. Yeah, I mean, you know, What's your these goal are the moments that, that yeah. you know, when I was lying in bed not being able to really <laughs> do much and wondering if I would play tennis again, that, you know, these are the moments that I've had in mind. And, uh, you know, to kind of keep that cherry out there um, to work towards, and, uh, you know, playing center court Wimbledon against Kyle uh, a little over a month ago um, was another extremely cool experience for me. So I'm excited. You know, I'm just continuing to go out there and build on my game and, you know, see what I can do against these guys. Well, I've come to the site early today to make sure that I tried to track down someone who played on the professional ATP tour, career high number four in singles, high number 18 in doubles, overall 20 singles titles, and a bronze medal at the 1988 Olympics. I'd like to welcome here on ATP Tennis Radio, Brad Gilbert. Thank you. Good morning. The older I get, the better I used to be. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Now, you had a very successful 13-year career your career on the tour um, and then you decided after that to go to coaching how did that decision come about did you was it something coaching was coaching something you always wanted to pursue I guess you know part of you know being a tennis player I'd like to think of I'm a lifer and the last year that I played in Miami 94 actually when I started with Andre 
I was playing. And when I started coaching him in that first tournament, I was ranked higher. We went to dinner, um, and he started asking me a bunch of questions about the direction of where his tennis was going. And basically after, you know, we had a long three-hour night, I, I said, you know, I think I can help you. And we started the next morning, which led to eight years of, of me coaching. So I think maybe he knew that coaching, you know, I should be doing it be, uh, sooner than I did. But I, I kind of always thought in the back of my mind it was a possibility. You mentioned you coached Andre as well as some other players. But let's talk about Andre specifically. When he asked you that, were there things exactly in your mind that you knew right away that you wanted to work on with him? I just felt like at the time, you know, I'd played him eight times, that he wasn't maximizing what he was doing. And, and I felt like I could kind of help him simplify what he was doing and get a lot more out of, you know, where he was going. So, you know, I learned on the fly. Um, I was still trying to play as well. But it was really fun learning experience because I didn't really think about as a player peaking. And Andre was a lot more thinking about peaking and, and performing well for slams. And I was like, man, every week is a slam for me, you know, you know, just doing good or, you know, I, I, I didn't understand the whole concept of peaking. So, it, you know, I learned a lot from him as well. And uh, it, it was a great uh, eight year experience. So can you um, elaborate on that a little bit more? Like what would he, would, would that involve like scheduling, like making sure he picked at the slams because of certain, like making sure he's playing certain tournaments before or not maybe playing so much, like exactly what you mean by um, making sure he like, peaked? Like all of a sudden, you know, let's say we're here at Canada. It, you know, it, it's thinking to how he's going to be ready for the second week of the Open. You know, how am I going to be ready, prepared for the grass? And so all of the, the year was based around the four slams and, and how you could best perform those. I just played week in and week out. I, I was thinking about peaking for the, you know, the next match I was playing. I didn't really think ahead that, like, man, if I temper my schedule or I do this, I just played, you know. If anything, and when I was hurt, I would, like, play through it. You know, if, if he was hurt set the rackets down, got to be right. I'm like, man, if you're hurt, you learn to play through it. So there was, but I never was thinking about winning slams or peaking for slams. I just was peaking for the next match. And then um, you talked about making sure he was, like you didn't think he was maximizing his potential. Like what exactly did you think he was, what, what did you feel like you helped him with um, in that regard? I, I think the, the, the biggest difficulty that he had I call it the pursuit of perfection doesn't exist. It only makes you miserable chasing it. So the way he was brought up, I mean, he won four and three. He, he thought he sucked. He, he, you know, or his dad always, it should have been one and one. It should have been one and oh. It always should be better. And I'm like, man, if you get the win, on to tomorrow. The best win is when, you, when you've played, like, not very good. You win seven, six, and third, and, but you give yourself a chance to play tomorrow and keep competing. And, like, he'd win a tight match, and he'd think, oh, this tournament's over. I'm playing terrible. It's like, no. It's easy sometimes to win when you, listen, you're on autopilot. You win one and one You learn a lot more about yourself is when you find a way to win when you're not playing at your best. Gives yourself an opportunity to get better tomorrow. Well, you were with him for six of the Grand Slam titles that he won. He won more than that, but you were there with him for six. And then you also coached Andy Roddick when he was – won the title of the U.S. Open in 2003 and also finished year number one in that particular year. Was it a similar experience for you with Andy? You know, I like to think of myself as a coach that I don't have a thought that, like, I'm going to take player A and G and make them into my style. My style is making them better at, at what they can do. So, Andre, I could speak at hours on end about tactics and Andre also had a photographic memory of every single rally let's say he'd tell you at 4 3 30 15 the 27 ball rally like he's a radio play-by-play guy every single stroke of everything and he would really like to admit Andy was massively different sometimes 30 seconds and it would be like Mission Impossible he'd implode you know and so yeah, it was more about getting in, getting out. I made a couple of subtle changes with him. I used to tell him sometimes, on your serve at the point, goes longer than four shots, pull a ripcord, jump out the plane. Make the point short, you know, and, you know, I, I had him maybe go for a second serve a little more, put a little fear in your opponents with your serve, 
And when I started with him, he stood on the baseline to return a little bit like Andre, but he, he wasn't successful at it. So I moved him way back to give himself a little more time. It was just little subtle changes. I, and I think more than anything, it's making a player aware of how they can maximize what they're doing and even make better use of their strengths. Yeah, that was a good example. Okay, have you moved himself back on the return? Was that over across the board or depending on the type of player he was playing? I felt like, especially if anybody had a decent size serve, move back, give yourself a little more time, get a little air on the return or take a bigger cut at it. Because he, he wanted to take a bigger cut at it on the and he stood close. And I felt like he'd missed too many returns. Occasionally he would make a good one, but he missed way too many. And... So it was more about giving him a little more confidence and making, you know, more balls on the return. And then if you could get into more returns, maybe that would translate into you having more opportunities to break. I think that's one of the toughest things for a coach is, you know, there's so many different players and different personalities as well. And having to adapt to all those different types of players. You also coach Annie Murray and Kay Nishikori. And with with Kay, I just want to bring that one up because obviously huge culture difference there was that a little bit of a challenge it was definitely probably my biggest challenge as a coach he was my son's roommate at uh, Balateri's um, maybe when they were like 17 so I had met him um, then and I think that even though he'd been in the states already for quite a while his English so-so but he did much better when I talked tactics he kind of looked at me like man I was talking too much or was going over him but he responded best when I would give him an email on tactics, and then he could, you know, understand it and process it better. But I, I certainly couldn't go, you know, same like with Roddick. I couldn't go, you know, shoot, sometimes Andre would like to discuss it for three hours. Every match? or No. No? It, it could be different. Just certain situations. Yeah. But he challenged you in that literally every single point. He would remember. And, you know, if all of a sudden I told him you should have taken that forehand and maybe come in at 4-3, and it was like, and then he'll recite you the rally. Which ball? Go over. But he, he kept you on your toes, and he really had a good understanding of what happened. Roddick, sometimes with him, more would be, you know, lost in the shuffle a little bit. So you had to get in and get out. Every once in a while, some of my best coaching with Roddick would, if I really wanted him to play the forehand, I'd tell him to play the backhand. And then he would tell me, oh, see, you're wrong. <laughs> so you had to, I had to use a little reverse psychology with him. And I think part of being a coach is understanding that no player is the same. Um, Andy was one of the, the craziest experiences of ever, you know, that period when I had him. Man, he used to Roddy. rail on yeah, uh, Andy Murray. Andy Murray, sorry. Yeah. yeah, He used to rail on me all the time in the box. Oh, my God, he would like... It was my fault about I took the rackets to the stringer wrong or he just he liked to vent on me um, about stuff. But the craziest thing about Andy is he was so like crazy on the court and then off the court he was so mellow, so chilled, relaxed. And you look at this guy like, oh, my God, you get on the court, you're completely different. And he, he's a little bit like uh, um, Andre, too, that he has an incredible recollection what's happening and if you would tell him tactic whatever the tactic is no matter what he'd always challenge you why why do you think that would work and he went Andre would never if I would tell Andre a tactic he would never ask me why he you know I would say that Andre is a complicated genius I'm a Chevy truck I just see it I say it and sometimes when you're really complicated you know you have these long thoughts and everything about if I see it, I said, but no matter what I would tell Andy Murray, he'd always tell me, why? How come? How, why do you see it this way? Maybe it's not going to happen that way. What happens if it doesn't happen that way? And I'd always say, you know what? I'll take my chances. I said, you know, I go by the eye test. And he wanted to know if I, do I, did I use the statistical analysis? I said, I'm going by my eye test. My eye test feels pretty good about what I'm telling you. I, I think that's a, an important point you make because the support group around these players is so important so and you see some players switching coaches pretty some that don't and some that switch pretty often so it's really hard to find that that good mix and I think you know you obviously found it with Andre and and Roddick and Murray didn't 
love the Chevy truck maybe as much, but that whole support group around players is so important, the relationships. Would you agree? Yeah, there's no doubt. Um, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'd like to think that, okay, I never really was part of a big team. When, when I was with Andre, it would just be most of the time me and Andre, and then uh, maybe a third of the year Gil Reyes would come. That would be it. There was no minivan team. Um, and even when I was with Andy Murray, it was just me and him. I mean, then after me, he grew to a big team. Now, now you're seeing, I call it a full minivan. Sometimes I feel like for a player, if you're, you know, and I know they're trying to maximize their potential for everything, but I feel like if, if it's one player and he's got like a team of seven or eight, that can be a little confusing, you know, and when is the right time for the coach, the trainer, the physio, the assistant coach, and if they got two coaches, it, it's a little bit um, overwhelming. But I know all these players are looking for, for the best of what they can do. I had the same coach, you know, my whole, from 18, basically the first coach I ever had, I had from 18 to when I stopped. And I promise you, he never lost the match. I never put, I never, we never got in an argument once. Um, your wife's biggest fear sometimes is you become your dad through osmosis. I'd like to think I became my coach. I just tell him I got a chance to coach better players than him. And so you brought up, um, you know, the entourage that comes around. I was talking to Sitsipas' father yesterday, actually, and I asked him about he took a trip by himself to learn more about himself and learn more about his tennis. Do you feel like that's something that a lot of players would benefit from if they, you know, they, they travel full time with this whole group, maybe go to, I'm not saying all the time, but maybe two, three, four events maybe by themselves? You know, it's a good idea to learn about yourself. Obviously, when I traveled, it was a completely different time. The money was different. You, you had to book your own practice partners. You, you know, if you travel by yourself a lot, you, you, you learn to make decisions for yourself. Uh, probably now for a lot of these top players, the most important person is that everyday person that actually takes care of them. Like Rafa, I've never seen Rafa one time ever without his physio. You know, for all the taping, all the stretching, all that. Maybe that's like, you know, something that you can't do without because it's like in my day, okay, everybody had to wait for the one A to be trainer or the two trainers and you have to book your schedule around that. But having somebody consistently being, you know, taking care of you, all the things that you need, you know, maybe is a huge thing. But, you know, so let's say if, if you travel with six to eight people, there's a good amount of time sometimes being with one or two people. It's a, it's a good idea to help you kind of grow. You're now an ESPN broadcaster for some time now. When you're watching these matches, do you, does your coaching brain still stay in there? Like when you're watching, do you feel like, oh, I wish I could tell this player that or wish I could tell this player that to improve, help them oh, improve? I, you know, because they ask me all the time, like when I'm last night sitting courtside, what does Rafa need to do? And you start to just put on your thoughts what what player A or B needs to do to turn things around. So I think people like to hear that. You're sitting courtside so you have the opportunity to kind of see from from what you see and what you feel. And listen, um, I have to pinch myself. I mean, my whole adult life, all I got to do is something I really love is tennis. So I like to think of I'm 57 years old. I'm a lifer. I hope that 20 years from now I'm still doing this. And I don't live in the past. I don't think about what I did as a player because it's not relevant and how I played. I like to think of about like modern times. We were talking about the swing and volley last night. I was like, listen, it wasn't around when I played, but it's an awesome shot. I work with kids on it. And it's like, I like thinking about what the trend is going to be in 2027. Can I think ahead of the curve? That's what motivates me. Is there any, anyone in particular that you, would, you wish you would love to work with? Man, life would have been easy if you were just coaching Roger or Rafa. <laughs> How easy would what would you be? say to them? I always wondered this. Like, what would you just say, what would you say to them to improve? Honestly, whoever I coach, I just say it's day one. It's a blank canvas, and I'm gonna help you make your dreams. I'm gonna. I like to think of. I'm gonna help you get better. And so. And how you, would you do that? Well, you know what it is is obviously once you spend a little time with somebody on the practice courts, knowing the individual. Every player always thinks they can get better. When you don't think you're going to get better, you can't get better, and others will get better around you. So, as a you, listen, players are looking for a coach because they want them, you know, some want them for a different reason. 
but I'm not going to take a job and then not be confident that I could help the person. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not a coach. I'm just carrying somebody's bag. Um, so I'd like to think of who, you know, whichever player it was, whoever it is, that there's always something that you can help them with. And, and one of my strengths is understanding the opponent they're playing against. And I don't, you know, use an insane amount of statistical analysis other than, you know, what my eyes tell me, what, what I see, and, and what my opponent's strengths is, or, or the player, and what the opponent's weakness might be, what they're trying to execute, what they're trying to execute against them. Little things like that, little tactics. And then there's always tweaking with their game stuff to get better. With Andre, when in, one of the simplest coaching things that I did, it had nothing to do with the technique. We were looking at stats in uh, the middle of 1994, looking at the return serve. Andre's looking at the return serve stats. He's in one or two in every stat. And, and I said, what about the serve stats? And I said, okay, let's just look at one stat, service games held. We go to Andre, 30th place on tour, service games held. And I look at him and I say, just simply, if all of your returns stats stay exactly the same, nothing changes a year from now, but you go from 30th place in games held to 10th, all of your dreams, that what you hope for will start to come true. And he's looking at me, he goes, 10th? He goes, that's absurd. Why would anybody want to be 10th in something? I'm like, well, you're 30th. And then he said to me, he goes, I'm going to finish 1995 first place on the tour holding serve. I was like, yeah, good for you. And sure enough, 1995, he went from 30th to first. So do you think he would have had the same response if you told him you're going to go from 30th to one right away? Well, I, it's interesting, right? Well, you know, because the thing is, like, in my mind, I'm you thinking... You challenged him. Yeah, well, I was thinking 30th to 10th was a good move. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, let's say if you're breaking 15% of the time, you don't... You know, all of a sudden, it's difficult to go from 15 to 29 or 30, some of the big servers. But listen, if we can go from 15% to 17%, you know, that's that 2% swing is 2% more you're getting and 2% less that your opponent... It's bigger than you think. So I think sometimes when you think about making too big of a leap or somebody, listen, I tell a lot of players, if we can cut our ranking in half or, you know, small, small, if you make the goals too lofty, you crash from them. So I think about like little simple numbers that are achievable and, and, and then, you know, they're possible. So many players that they're young, everyone's told, I'm going to win a bunch of grand slams. I said, Man, that's a lot of pressure to expect and hold on to at a young age. So I, I think about little numbers and things. You know, give yourself a target goal. I want to win 57 matches in, in 2018 and increase from 42. I want to play such and such. So goals that are achievable, I think, help you more realistic. And we're, we're so lucky here to talk to you here on ATP Tennis Radio because you've been now an ESPN broadcaster, like I mentioned, for a number of years when you look at the guys today on the tour, who do you feel like, because you know there's talk about the next gen and who's going to take over once Rafa Roger retire at some point and Djokovic, and um, who impresses you, would you say, is could make that? Not, I mean, everybody's good. We know everybody's good. But as far as tactically, technically, mentally. Well, we got a bunch of good young players that are, you know, I'd like to say the big four probably wiped out two generations uh, of winning slams. Potentially, if Delpo or Chilich don't win the Open, and it's somebody not in the 20s, there will be nobody active in the men's 30 or under who have won a slam. So eventually, it has to happen. And what we've had eight straight slams now. Somebody in their 30s has won a slam. But I, I mean, I like Zverev's, you know, potential. I like Denis Shapovalov. Um, I actually like the other Canadian, Felix. I think he's got great upside. I'm hoping one of these young Americans. I think at some point it has to happen. But listen, when you watch Rafa problem solve, you still see Fed at 37, how hungry he is. And Joker had to watch it for the last, you know, 18 months develop, and he gets back in the mix. So listen, these guys aren't going to hand these guys like a slam. They're going to have to win it and earn it. 
but and I, I, the, another one today that I like a lot is Hatchinoff. I think he, you know, Silent K, I call him. I think he has a huge potential because to me, the modern player now, 6'6", is no longer a big guy. I mean, these guys are moving, and the, the one thing I'm convinced to win slams in the men's, you have to be unbelievably quick and willing to play defense. If you're not willing to play defense, it's a tough time. I mean, look, the, the big four all play, you know, probably Murray plays the least offense, um, but Djokovic, Rafa, and Fed all play great offense, but they all have amazing willingness, if they have to, to play defense. And I love seeing that. So that's something that young players got to learn to understand. You can't win every point with offense. One person I'm curious about because there's been so much talk about, you know, being coachable and has so much talent is Curios. Can you see him winning a slam? I know a lot of people would love to see him just because he's got, he's got a huge following. Uh, um, he's got huge, he's probably an incredible athlete, but until he embraces having a coach that he's going to listen to, say, this is what the schedule is. This is what the team, this is what we're doing. Um, I think that, you know, you're going to continue to say that he has all this talent, but I don't think he's maximizing his talent whatsoever at the moment. He's an unbelievable athlete, mover. He can serve incredible, but right now I don't feel like he's getting anywhere near the talent until he takes a coach and the coach is the one in charge. And I know you mentioned Americans quickly. Um, You think John Isner, who had a great showing semifinals at Wimbledon, won Miami earlier in March, or April, do you feel like, I mean, he obviously is on the right, right track mentally as well. He's got a lot of confidence. Do you think he could come away with a slam or some other um, Americans? If you'd asked me before Wimbledon, I would have said zero chance. Why also, zero? Because um, he just can't, he couldn't break serve enough. Okay. And, to, and, and he couldn't avoid in slams. He seems like when he played a really long five-setter, he couldn't recover from it. He's 6'10", 250. Um... But I actually thought, when I looked at the draw, when he was in the third round, I said he's going to get to the semis of Wimbledon, which he did at that point. But then when Fed lost, I said Isner's – when we were down in the final four, I really thought he was going to win the tournament. I did. Um, so, I, you know, now all of a sudden I'm going to say at 33 he's a late bloomer. I think he might have another, you know, four to six slams where he has a chance. But it, it all comes down to his break game. His serve is unbelievable. But to win a slam, to beat a Djokovic, to beat a Rafa, to beat a Fed, you have to be able to break serve. So it, it, his serve is outrageous. And I think it, that he is in the conversation now, but it's still, when I watch him, I just think about, can he break enough? So thank you very much to Jill for all those interviews and, of course, to Nick McCarvel with me at the beginning of this podcast. Join myself, Shishi Salmon, and special guest next week as we'll look back on week one of the US Open. In the meantime, check out the ATP Tennis Radio channel for more interviews and features as well as daily news. This has been and will continue to be the ATP Tennis Radio podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you.